It's Murray here. Welcome to First Up. This is Rapa. That is Wednesday, the 16th of November. Ko Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, a helter-skelter action-packed programme for our Prime Minister as she heads to APEC in Thailand. And the countdown is on. NASA's Artemis rocket is set to blast into space for the first time. Daily COVID numbers creep above 4,000 in New Zealand for the first time in three months. Get your masks. And New South Wales battles the largest flood disaster in its history. So we're going to speak to the state's emergency services as New Zealand sends in fire and emergency staff to help. We're getting areas flooded that have never been flooded before. We're getting levels that are higher than we've ever experienced before. We will be resupplying many of these smaller communities and isolated farms for quite some months. Welcome to First Up. Nathan Rarity here with the team. We're all set to go for you and we're going to begin in Australia. Wow. Uh, flooding over there. Defence personnel and volunteers from around the world are pouring into New South Wales for rescue and relief efforts. The state's emergency services are facing their largest flood operation Ever. Joining us now from Australia, correspondent Pam Corkery, who was safe above the border there in, in Queensland. Uh, but uh, Pam, good to have you on. But tell us what's the latest that's happening floodwise over there. Well, just first about the in Maritna. Good morning. Um, volunteers, as you said, they're coming from New Zealand, the US, and Singapore. Now, the New Zealanders have arrived. So proud watching them um, arrive on the telly last night. Anyhow, um, the main areas of severe impact, and I worry sometimes about getting this absolutely spot on because, you know, so many people have relatives, uh, Kiwi relatives in Australia. I'll just quickly say the towns of Parks, Forbes, Mulong, Ugara, Kaura, Kanawindra, Blaney, Young and Yes. So this is in the central west of New South Wales. Um, they've just had, the, many have been told it's too late to leave from those areas. The town of Kaura remains cut off and the bridge was closed last night. In one area, the Bell River was flowing so ferociously against the Macquarie River, which is a mighty river, that it actually pushed it backwards. It moved the whole river back. It's just stunning, you know, and so many people have been airlifted out, and Perrottet, the um, New, New South Wales Premier, said, we've had overseas volunteers from right around the world when it comes to fighting fires, but this is the first time we've had it with floods. It's just there's been so much rain that, you know, there's just no dry ground to suck it up. This mm. is rain over months. It's very sad. Pam, and, and it's this thing too, I mean, if you ever doubted climate change, hello, this is the oh. third time this year that we've done yeah. a story in New South Wales of these are the biggest floods that's ever happened in this year. It's uh, unbelievable. So look, we'll have more on that later. Let's let's go to your Prime Minister, uh, Anthony Albanese. Quickly oh, sorry, go, go. quickly add to that, in South Australia, they're mm. expecting snow. Oh, that was me. I'm, I'm up off the floor now. Snow. My yeah. goodness me. Snow angels in Adelaide. Beautiful. Yeah. Hey, let's, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, um, your prime, uh, the Prime Minister there in Australia, Anthony Albanese, has just met uh, Xi Jinping. Yes. He's claiming a diplomatic win, and really the meeting is the win. Um, nothing's going to happen in a hurry. Just getting the meeting was huge after Beijing cut off all its high-level contact with Australia like three years ago. 
basically because of Scott Morrison. Um, and the meeting wasn't long, half an hour, and then he had four minutes with him a day or so earlier with the Premier. At stake, our Australian exports, exports were $20 billion a year. And I think I said last week, coal, beef, barley, lobster they've thrown in, and wine. They were vetoed by China because we were behaving just rudely. And um, China needs them. Australia wants to provide them. And Australia... Uh, in return, China would like to have more open Chinese investment in Australia, which will go down badly in a country that I think you could say leans towards racism at times. Sometimes. Uh, let's have a look yeah. at the Queensland. <laughs> so the Queensland Police Commissioner, he's waiting yeah. this report examining police culture. Why is there a report into uh, police culture? Honestly, um, I the transcripts of police conversations about... Um, people who they call black, um, have been released on The Guardian. Now, I was going through and thought I'd I'd cut out a few to read on the radio, but honestly, they're so bad, they're so off the chain, so sickening that you'd need, um, you know, a, a... an Ajax shower afterwards. I just, I couldn't do it. So these men have been um, caught saying these dreadful things. It comes along after a big inquiry into sexism in the ranks. Now, the Queensland Police Commissioner, Katerina Carroll, who I think is pretty good, you know, she's the first female officer, and there's talk of her being sacked for it, but she said this is going to take a long time. But it's just staggering, and it's it's a shame on the entire um police force, the stuff they said, and I'm just a little kid and it frightened me. Oh, that's um, yeah, terrible. Yeah, no, it would be awful. Oh, yuck, yeah. yeah. Pam, um, very very quickly, very quickly, cause why is Pauline Hanson headed for the Middle <laughs> East? What did they do? <laughs> To be, uh, yeah, what have they done to deserve it after her wearing the burqa so disrespectfully? So she's um, going to be on the show SAS Australia. You know, this woman is very offensive. She's been in jail after a jury found her guilty of electoral fraud. She got away with that one. She could get between 150k and 200 grand for the fee overall with daily top ups of. 2,500 just for a day, a bonus of 100 or of 1,000 um, for every three days. That's pretty good. I think on Celebrity Treasure Island in New Zealand, you get a, a pack and save voucher uh, at the end yep. of it. So I think you're doing a little better on SAS Australia if you are. I po- think. <laughs> I think they've, t- they've, they've added on Costco in New oh, yes, Zealand, yes. but yes, this is big coin. This is really big coin. <laughs> oh, you've got to do good stuff for a Costco card. Hey, uh, thank you very much, Pam. This year's Out of Australia, Pam Corkery. It is 12 past five. You are listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Listen to the uh, inflation number here if you think ours is staggering. Here we go. To Australia, uh, sorry, to Argentina now, where healthcare workers have taken to the streets to protest law changes, coupled with spiralling inflation that currently sits at 83%. One doctor has described working for less than the country's poverty line monthly salary. And as Rafael Romo reports, some analysts suggest inflation may go as high as 100% by the end of the year. On the streets of Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, demonstrators marching once again to tell the world they're fed up. 
This time it was doctors, nurses and other healthcare workers saying low wages and a galloping inflation have put them between a rock and a hard place. This is our eighth week of struggle and our second week of an indeterminate strike, this resident says, adding that they're demanding a living wage as well as insurance for unpaid interns. One of the striking doctors showed CNN his pay stub for the month of September, stating a salary in pesos equivalent to just over $760. That's below Argentina's poverty line salary of just over $800 a month for a family of four in the capital. Inflation has eroded the purchasing power of uh, wages for many years already. This financial analyst says workers have been hit by a double whammy of inflation and low salaries, especially in the last seven years. If you look back at uh, 2015, the end of 2015, uh, former, former workers, the purchasing power of wages are, is down 20%. And in the case of informal workers, it's almost 40%. According to government data, the inflation rate rose to 83% in the 12 months through September. Some analysts suggest it may go as high as 100% by the end of the year. Do you agree with this assessment? Yes, essentially th that is our forecast. Our, actually, our point forecast is uh, 103%. President Alberto Fernandez acknowledges inflation is high. But strangely, he says, consumption hasn't decreased and neither has industrial production nor gross domestic product. That's little consolation to striking doctors like Marcelo Acuña. He says that inflation has eroded the salary increases they've been able to get over the years. The government of Argentina announced Friday a deal with supermarkets to freeze or tightly control prices for around 1,500 products. But analysts like Blasquez say this new effort to contain inflation will have little impact if Argentina doesn't deal with one of the root problems, resorting to printing pesos to make up for a rising fiscal deficit. Wow. Uh, quarter past five, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Time to get the latest from the Middle East. It's our correspondent, Alex Beard, who is with us. Kia ora, Alex. I imagine there's all sorts of cleaning and polishing going on with the FIFA World Cup happening. When is that? This weekend it's happening? Yeah, so the 20th of November, it's coming very, very quickly around the corner. Um, I, I personally just started to notice, I'm actually on the street right now, that you have a lot more people coming in. Um, and you can tell a lot kind of, you've got a pretty, in terms of the, the population here, you have a lot of people um, from Southeast Asia, you have a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent, um, you're starting to see people from parts of the world that you wouldn't usually see in Doha. So you're also having a number of teams getting in here every day, it seems that there's another celebration, we had Tunisians celebrating their team the other day, um, the Indian community out celebrating their teams. Um, we're expecting around 1.2 million people, and interestingly, because this is a... Um, Basically, it is a fairly small country where basically everyone lives in one city, right, in Doha. Um, and so the concern was around where 1.2 million people going to sleep. So you're starting to see now cruise ships pulling up into the harbour, which are going to be moored. So people will actually be, um, you know, doing three or four weeks of the World Cup here, but be spending the whole time on a cruise ship. They've um, got Bedouin tents in the desert. They've got um, a bunch of portacoms that they've set up and painted pretty colours to make them look less porticommy. Um, and they're out in the desert as well. 
Um, but yeah, I think the, the excitement's growing here. There's a lot of public art out. Um, all the streets have been closed down in preparation. And I think it's going to be a, a pretty exciting time. Yeah. Imagine what you can rent your room out for. That'd be quite good. Let's go um, to Turkey, though. <laughs> Turkey is in mourning. What, what's happened there? Yeah. Yeah, so we had a pretty awful bomb attack in a very, very part, a busy part of Istanbul um, called Istiklal. And for, for people who have been here before, um, this is one of the places that you just know once you've been there. It's kind of like the equivalent of Queen Street in Auckland or Courtney Place in Wellington. So this was, you know, chocker full of, of tourists, of, of locals. Um, going about their business and around three o'clock the other day in the afternoon, a, a bomb went off and it's killed six people, injured over 80 people. Um, and so as the, is the case in Islam, the, the funerals happen very quickly. So over the last day or so, we've had a number of those funerals taking place. Um, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, very, very angry, um, saying that this was a treacherous attack, saying it looks like terrorism. Uh, there hasn't been an attack in this part of Istanbul since 2017, and that was a suicide attack that was carried out by a, a Turkish, uh, a Kurdish rather, separatist group. Um, the same separatist group has said, hey, we didn't do this this time, um, but I think a lot of fingers are still pointing that way. They've actually arrested 47 people for this attack, um, which just shows you how serious this is because, you know, this is the heart of Turkey. It's not the capital, but 18, 19 million people a number of tourists, Turkey wanted to like assert that Istanbul is safe. It is the first terror attack since 2017, but still a pretty awful day in Istanbul. You are mentioning there about arrests, and we've seen the bravery of people uh, in Iran protesting. What's the latest there in Iran? Yeah, so this is just the story that keeps on going, and we've spoken about this week on week on week, and I hate to say it, but it just looks like now, rather than the protest movement being successful, it's, it's, it is continuing, but the crackdown is getting more intense. So you've had the first, uh, first death sentence um, handed out for, for a protester. There, there were hundreds of votes in the Iranian parliament the other day where they were suggesting and they voted for uh, the death penalty for a number of crimes against the state, which means I think you'll be seeing a lot more death sentences being carried out because you have thousands of people who have been arrested as part of this protest movement. Um, for those of you who, who may not remember, this all, all broke out basically over two months ago now over the death of a 22-year-old woman in the custody of the morality police because her hijab wasn't on correctly. Uh, and this has spun out into a wider conversation and a wider protest movement, especially amongst youth, about women's rights in Iran. But, you know, the, the, the Iranian regime is just not willing to give any room. This is the largest protest movement, really, that has been in Iran since the Iranian Revolution in the uh, 1970s. And as I said, it's, it's not going away. The crackdown is getting more brutal. We're having death sentences now being handed out. But protesters, in their bravery, they're still going out in the streets. They're still risking being arrested. And a number of these people, these are young people, a lot of these people have been arrested and they're facing this pretty iffy future now, are teenagers, those in their early 20s from the universities. So he's hoping, as we always say week after week, that it leads to some kind of fundamental change in Iran, but you are seeing a more brutal crackdown now. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much for your time from Doha. Alex Beard.
At 21 past five, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. I'm Nathan Rarity. So uh, still to come on the program, NASA's Artemis rocket is set to blast into space for the first time. Uh, we'll speak with James Parr about that. And the daily COVID numbers, you might have heard about this, they've crept over 4,000 daily for the first time in three months. Professor Michael Baker is with us to tell us what that means. Time to check in with the good folks at Trade Me Now. And this morning we hear about a celebrity chef's multi-million dollar mansion for sale and a signed Black Ferns jersey. Ooh, hot item right now. But first, Trade Me's Millie Sylvester told our producer Matthew Tunison about a West Coast gold mining claim which is up for grabs. This listing is certainly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and is the chance really to make your dream of striking it rich. Listed on site, we have the chance for you to own a gold dredging mining claim. So this is a small-scale suction dredging on the Lower Grey River in Greymouth, and it's the mining permit until December 2031. So it covers about seven kilometres of river from Taylorville down to just above Greymouth town. So if I haven't really got your attention yet, the mining claim is just 10 k downstream of the mighty three and a half thousand ton grey river bucket dredge that mined fifty thousand ounces of gold. So this really could be your chance. this is all that could even be like willing loss or really. Unsurprisingly, of course, it's had a whole lot of attention and so far the bids are sitting at around nineteen thousand dollars, a three hundred and forty watch list. So a lot of people hoping they might they might strike gold. Literally. Wow. Millie, tell me about next. We've got a quite stunning home for sale owned by celebrity chef Chelsea Winter. Yeah, this is a fairy tale lifestyle home and it's a beautiful property full of little places to explore and enjoy. And it's a three bedroom home, wonderfully designed with beautiful views of lush Bay of Plenty greenery all around it. But I have to say, it's the designer kitchen here that just really takes the cake. And of course, fit for a professional chef, it is home to none other than Chelsea Winter. So it's got dual sink areas, masses of bench space, a large, beautiful central wooden island, and it really is part of the home, which, I mean, you'd expect nothing less than Chelsea Winter's home. So the property is just beautiful in, in the sense that it's a blend of like really elegant simplicity but some really gorgeous designer details too. So there's sort of like wooden effect ceramic tiles throughout the floors and ceilings in each bathroom, plantations, shutters, a floating concrete fireplace to name just a few things and then as you would expect the land, landscaping is just full of native and non-native plants, a whole lot of fruit trees and, and, and all sorts there's a magnificent veggie garden you could be completely on your own out there and, and have plenty of crops to keep you going for the year so a really amazing property and of course with the celebrity chef tag on it too the price tag is is pretty up there they're looking at 2.5 million for this one so definitely yeah. getting the attention it deserves with 36,000 views so far since it was listed last week. Wow, that is an incredible setting too, isn't it, in the, in, in the Bay of Plenty countryside there. Finally, on the back of the magnificent black ferns, tell us about the signed jersey that's up for grabs. Uh, what a game that was. And of course, often we see with any kind of big event that's important for New Zealand, we see listings pop up on site that relates to that event. And that's exactly what we have here. We have a signed Black Ferns jersey that has signatures from the team of 2019 all the way up until today. 
And obviously with their recent World Cup win, we're guessing there's going to be very high demand for this particular jersey. And the proof's actually in the pudding already with 148 watch lists on this listing. But what is really special is that the money raised is going towards a new um, surf life-saving clubhouse. So a really clever way that this particular member has decided to raise money by using what is such an amazing win and event and obviously had the signed jersey and decided to list it to raise some funds. So far the bids are at about $600 for this particular jersey, but you've got until Thursday morning to bid on this one. That'll be a collector's item that I reckon. Definitely. This would make such a great Christmas present for that budding rugby fan. Trade Me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life. We call the 16th of November. Happy 29th birthday. Pete Davison, Davidson, covered in tattoos, dating everybody. Honestly. Pete Davidson. I was having all his tattoos taken off, Katrina. Is that right? Really? We might lose the superpowers. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is uh, 45 years old today. Then when I looked it up, apparently it's Swedish and you're supposed to say Gyllenhaal, but no one knows it as Gyllenhaal. So that's why I've gone with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, which is uh, what they say in America. And Lisa Bonet is 55 years old today. On this day in 1994, an album came out called Crazy Sexy Cool by a band called TLC. They told you to don't go chasing waterfalls. And yeah, that appeared in your ears on this day in 1994. Uh, let's have a look at a bit of our arts and culture as well on the uh, performance, I guess the, the film front uh, it started out as the stage play it was the latest, the last of Rogers and Hammerstein's musicals, The Sound of Music opened on Broadway in this day in 1959 1,443 performances later it shut, that's amazing, it won five Tony Awards, of course became a film in 1965 uh, the budget for that film 8.2 million and it bought in 286.2 million, imagine that back in 1965, huge amount of money, not as big as this one though the film version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone opened in theatres in the year 2001 and it made the tiny tiny minuscule amount of 974.8 million US dollars and uh, that's the happenings on this day the 16th of November. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Hey, hey. Well, I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Hey, hey. Said I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. And if I share with you my story, would you share your dollar with Let's check in with what the business team have for you today. It's Andrew McRae who's here. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Uh, good day, Nathan. I'm good. So tell me about this. When it says New Zealand companies doing poorly in the latest sustainability global survey, what does that mean and what's the survey? Well, that's a survey by the business consultancy firm KPMG where it looks at the, the top 100 companies in each country. And now, New Zealand's really slipped down in the ranks. So back in 2017, we're right up there. But in the latest survey, Aotearoa ranks uh, 38th out of 58 countries and the top 10 are some of our main trading partners. So that's not, not, not a great figure. It's not that bad, though, because there has been some improvement in environmental, social and governance reporting. But progress was comparative less than the key trade 
trading partners. Uh, KPMG's New Zealand partner Ian Proudfoot says the fact that given the scale of the issues the country faces, uh, the impacts that corporate organisations have on people and the planet, this country's rate of progress is what he describes as underwhelming. He believes the, we're missing out on the significant opportunities offered by improving reporting and by doing this we're missing out on delivering you know, world-class sustainability reporting. Now these opportunities include the ability to engage with people to be future employees and to attract uh, customers and of course new markets. Now New Zealand is moving forward but according to Ian, just not fast enough to catch up. So what can be done? Well he believes that companies shouldn't wait around for new reporting regulations on climate standards which are due to come into effect next year and they'll be implemented in uh, you know 2024 so he wants them to move quickly. He, he calls this basically a, a circuit breaker so the companies can move faster. He's calling on them to use the, the same level of rigour that they do for non-financial information that's required by, um, uh, you know, you know, non-financial information, you know, around sustainability. Mm. He wants them to come up with the information for that report in the same rigour that they do for the information they have to provide for, you know, regulators and, of course, the stock exchange. And he wants them to, to aspire to reporting standards that align to how people out there in the world perceive New Zealand to be. And that's a, it's basically, he says, it's a country that is doing, you know, good for the world. He also believes there's some really positive stories to be told, but it's really not happening in the sustainability reporting front. He, he says in reality uh, the reporting is telling the story of organisations that are doing basically the bare minimum and that's just really you know ticking the boxes to comply as opposed yeah. to really you know really talking about what they're doing and really trying to make a, a real difference out there. We should do more of a deep dive into that. Thank you very much Andrew McRae there, the business team with you on Morning Report today at 10.27. Very quickly, if you're shopping with a New Zealand dollar you can return with the following things. 61.37 US cents, 91.24 Australian cents, 59 euro cents, 51.50 British pence, 4.31 yuan and 85.43 Japanese yen. So this week, all going to plan, NASA's Artemis rocket should blast into space. So this this is a big unmanned rocket that's going to take astronauts back to the moon for the first time since the Apollo program ended in the 70s. With me now is James Parr from Trillium Technologies to talk Artemis and other interesting stuff. Kia ora man, how are you? I'm very well, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm good. So this has been delayed since June. What what are the chances of a liftoff this week then, really? I think 50-50. I think, 50, oh. I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, it's new technology. Well, newish. It's actually using a lot of old space shuttle technology. And if you remember, the first shuttles kept on getting delayed as well. So, so it's, um, and it's the, the problem is they're working with hydrogen and hydrogen being such a light gas, it keeps on kind of finding ways of escaping. And the last thing they want to do is have their $4.1 billion rocket, you know, explode on the pad. So it, yeah, exactly. So they, I think they're just being super safe. Yeah. Ah, so that, I mean, so we're going to the moon. I know I've, you've spoken to us before about this as getting to the moon as being like in the old days when New Zealanders used to fly to LA and you had to stop over in Fiji or Hawaii on the on the way, right? So <laughs> do we know yeah. after they get this one up, how long would it be between an unmanned one and then the first manned flight? Um, yeah, I think you know it, it's. They, the, this was a plan from the Trump administration, and basically Donald Trump said, "I want you to go back to the moon," and I think he wanted it to happen during his uh, tenure. But of course, he didn't give NASA enough money to do that. In fact, it was just a fraction 
of what was required. So I think we're thinking that human um, missions will be about 2028. So still a while to go, I think five years away. Oh, yeah, I can, and, do, um, I can do the training by then. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be developed. Um, and um, and I think, you know, originally the, the whole idea of doing it so quickly was just just politics. Um, but they want to they want to go back, you know, properly and make sure that uh, people are safe. So I think I think 2028, 2029 is probably a realistic prediction. That's uh, let's mention part of the New Zealand space program. Uh, the the Rocket Labs, the <laughs> capstone mission that has reached that that moon orbit. So can you just tell us about capstone and how does that support this Artemis mission? Well, capstone is uh, um, uh, testing out the this special orbit, which is where the gateway is going to be. So the idea of, um, you know, permanently being able to go back to the moon rather than just sort of go back and forth and do snapshots is that we need to have a space station in orbit around the moon. But that space station also needs to be able to see um, the Earth for as much as possible as, as we can uh, in terms of radio connectivity. And so they've created this new orbit uh, and um, they're using the capstone mission to essentially test that orbit, which means that, um, you know, once we have uh, the, the rocket finished, it doesn't have its hydrogen leaking, we can then send astronauts up to that, um, that, uh, that orbit. There'll be a space station there and they can use that as a, um, as a pad to get down to the moon surface. I always wanted to talk about the hydrogen because I remember uh, I fell in love in, with science in third form because Mr. Kirsten exploded a hydrogen balloon uh, in the classroom, <laughs> yeah. which apparently you're not allowed to do now because it's quite explosive. So, <laughs> I yeah, about yeah, that. hopefully yeah. that's not not happening tomorrow at seven o'clock. Yeah, oh, yeah, true. So, um, also, so Rocket Labs has also announced they're going to do their first launch not in Mahia though. Where, where are they going to do this one? Yes, the, they're um, they have a second launch facility um, in the US, and this is at uh, the NASA Wallops, which actually is also a Space Force um, uh, launch site just south of um, Washington, D.C. there. And I think it probably is, um, my hunch is the reason for that is, of course, they want to keep um, American technologies that that are protected by a special law called ITAR. And that um, those technologies, um, they want to be able to launch from from the US without leaving the continental US. So that's probably the reason why they're launching from uh, that Wallops facility. Ah, there they go. James, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, my friend. Stay safe. There he is. Uh, Yeah, good to talk to you. Out of the UK, James Parr uh, from Trillium Technologies. And the Open Space Agency. It is 22 to 6 right now. I'm Nathan Radere, and you are with First Up here on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the program today, you're going to hear about those daily COVID numbers creeping up above 4,000 for the first time in three months. Professor Michael Baker will be here to talk about that. And we will uh, also take a closer look too at these horrible floods that are hitting New South Wales. <laughs> The professionals of RNZ are up after six. It is the morning report team, and it's Corin Dan who is with me now. Kia ora, how are you? Tamaria, uh, I'm very well, thank you, Nathan. Uh, kia ora, everybody. We'll take a deep dive into the RMA. We'll make it interesting, I promise. 
Uh, we're going to look at the issues around this massive reform, such an, an integral piece of legislation, the RMA for New Zealand. So big changes being proposed by the government, two new bills, three new bills. In fact, I'm going to look at two aspects of that. Obviously, the housing and the uh, urban design and planning and infrastructure and all the changes there, but also the impact on land use, farming, water allocation, uh, the involvement of a Māori in the decision-making around that. That is going to be an area which I think will be, con- well, continues to be contentious. So we'll have more on that. Hmm. Uh, we'll hear from nurses who are obviously struggling at ED. Core logic with this report about uh, increasing numbers selling their houses at a loss. Uh, Christopher Luxon from the National Party, the leader, is on. And we'll go to the US to check in on the gubernatorial. Oh, I love that, that word. word. I know. Uh, <laughs> when I first heard it, I was like, why aren't people saying gubernatorial properly? It's like, is it the run for governor? Yeah, but it's the gubernator. Like, gubernatorial. Uh, okay. Yeah, we'll check in on the Arizona race, which has now been won yes. by the Democrat, Katie Hobbs, over the uh, Republican, Carrie Lake, who was very extreme, pro-Trumper, mm. um, denied the uh, election result. They seem to be saying, Nathan, which it makes a bit of sense, that the whole strategy of um, denying the credibility of elections wasn't great for turnout for the no. Republicans, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, because and now I see a lot of them doing the nah, that's it, I'm never ever voting again. So I think if you're Joe <laughs> Biden, you're going to change that strategy. Yeah, how mm. good is this? Okay, thank you uh, very much. Yes, you can hear more from the Morning Report team up after six. Well, let's go to Australia now, where authorities say that they're dealing with the biggest flood operation in the state's history as reinforcements arrive from New Zealand. Hundreds of residents in the town of Forbes have been told to evacuate urgently, while towns downstream are being warned to brace for more heavy rainfall this week. New Zealand is sending 12 fire and emergency staff to help with the response and to give exhausted emergency crews a break. Our producer, Matthew Tunison, spoke with the New South Wales Emergency Service Commissioner, Carlene York and asked if they're there, you know, if they're through the worst of it. No, we're not through the worst of it. Obviously, yesterday at Ugari, Ugara, which was a small town in western New South Wales, was severely hit with uh, thunderstorms and rain. It is receding very slowly. It's quite flat out in those areas, but we are looking at record floods down at Forbes, which is where the rain that has fallen over the last 24 hours falls into the catchment area and flows down the river. So we're forecasting a record flood level at 10.8, which they had approximately two weeks ago. So a lot of those houses will be and businesses will be re-affected by this flood water. Right, second time in two weeks. Yeah, we've been in flood pretty much for the last 18 months and west of the Great Dividing Range, which is just away from the coastal areas of New South Wales, have been in minor to major flooding in all of our catchment areas. So this will just add into our saturated ground, our overflowing dams and really fill up those river areas and put our community again at risk. Hundreds of people evacuated. How many at this stage? Well, at this stage, we've got a total number of warnings out across the state of 120, and there's emergency warnings to evacuate now at 24 different locations. So the latest one we've issued was for 7am this morning at Forbes to evacuate by 7am, and that was a lot earlier than expected. The rain has been heavier and flowing into the rivers and rising much quicker, and that affects around 1,000 homes and businesses. So many people are affected by this. And are you expecting the floodwaters to affect towns downstream of where they currently are? Yeah, so we're at the moment we're very much preparing those towns downstream of Forbes and the nature of our river systems means that they will 
be flowing down towards the Murray River, which is on the border of Victoria and New South Wales, and eventually find their way into South Australia. But the Bureau here of Meteorology has forecast, even without any more rain, we will be in flood till well past Christmas, and they are already forecasting more rain this coming weekend. So we know that it's going to be very wet and uh, many communities will be affected by the subsequent rain events. Goodness. And can you give us a bit of an idea of the geography now? It, it, it's a very flat part of the state by the looks of it. Is that right? And so these floodwaters have just come rushing through at a very high pace. Yes, many of these areas that we're talking about in the western and central parts of New South Wales, it's a lot of basis of our food basin, a lot of plains, flat ground, and we're finding that we're getting areas flooded that have never been flooded before. We're getting levels that are higher than we've ever experienced before. And what happens is it lays around for weeks. So we're not only preparing the communities for the flood coming down the river system, responding when it does go up and people need rescuing, but we will be resupplying many of these smaller communities and isolated farms for quite some months into about February. As we speak, it's uh, Tuesday afternoon, New Zealand Fire and Emergency Personnel, I believe, are due to arrive in the area this evening. Tell us why that help is, is necessary. Right. Well, we're so excited that they've said yes and wanted to, and you know, great relationship with New Zealand and that they want to come and help us. The issues are I've got to make sure we've got enough resources through those months that I've mentioned and our volunteers and emergency service agencies, particularly SES, are tired, fatigued, and they need some breaks. And there's 12 specialists that have come out from New Zealand Fire and Emergency Services, and they have already landed in parks. I spoke to their team leader today, and they're already out in the community, helping the community and helping our resources out there. So it's, a, it's really been well-received by our SES volunteers to have that support coming, and it is great. We work very closely with New Zealand anyway in the emergency management space, and they were very quick to offer their assistance and send them across. I believe that once this 12 have finished their rotation, there's another 12 coming in, so we're very grateful for the assistance. That's the New South Wales Emergency Service Commissioner, Carleen York. It is 11 to 6. The Prime Minister has uh, just landed in Vietnam, and so has our business editor, Giles Beckford, and boy howdy, has he had some sort of travel there. This is great. This is where in the world <coughs> is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. How are you? Tell us about the, <coughs> the, the, the travel from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. Security and Nathan, look, we had a little bit of a, a, a kerfuffle, which was, uh, as you would expect, there's a lot of paper. Everybody piles in, the media, the PM, the officials, and a good number of business people who are here for a, a business uh, delegation get down uh, partway down one of the taxiways, about to turn onto the main railway. They're doing the counting and think, we've got one body too many. Well, you've got the PM on board, that's one thing. There's the security aspect. All the weight calculations, of course, different. You don't want to stow away. So we sat there for about 40-odd minutes as they were literally going one, two, three, four, five, then getting the passenger lists out and ticking off the names and looking at tickets. It turns out that they had two lists and one didn't tally with the other. So. <laughs> Oh my no, a, a minor thing, but 45-minute delay, but we're here now, even uh, as it comes up to midnight. But how about this? Giles Beckford travelling with a motorcade. Is this true? 
it's true. Look, the Vietnamese do this really seriously for their you know, uh, honoured guests. You know, three, four, or five police cars, stretch limo for the PM and uh, officials and, and that. We travel in a minibus at the back of the queue, but there's a couple of um, police cars behind us and an ambulance and half a dozen outriders, and they literally just block off all the roads that will join the route uh, that the dignitary is going on, sirens going, and you know they, they do it really seriously just looking at the queues of traffic that have been held up by us and you're thinking hey we're just from new zealand do we really uh, you know justify this but that's the way they do it here yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it, it takes an, an hour to get from the airport usually but this is just 20 minutes <laughs> fantastic we'll, we'll quickly get to the agenda on apex soon but what, what i understand that uh, you've been surrounded by pamelo pamelo's Fruit. It's been a very fruity day. Uh, this has been sort of the first serious business uh, delegation day out there selling themselves. Fonterra had a function this morning where they were uh, selling the virtues of their products and bringing bone density. And they had a couple of bone density machines there where they could test whether you were uh, at risk of osteoporosis. Uh, Jacinda Ardern didn't do it. She sent in Damien O'Connor, the chief trade minister, as her stunt double. And he came away saying, oh, I'm Bill, I'm above average, so don't worry about me. So that was good. And then this afternoon, a lot of it was agriculture or agricultural-related um, and this is the way travel deals, uh, sorry, trade deals get down to. The Vietnamese wanted to get limes into New Zealand. There were worries about fruit fly and the like. New Zealand wants to get um, strawberries and squash into Vietnam, uh, um, and there have been barriers there. And New Zealand cooperated with Vietnam in uh, helping to grow pomelo. Now, pomelo is of the grapefruit variety, um, apparently. They're big, yellow, fruity things, citrus, um, quite quite juicy and, and, and sweet. Um, but they're, uh, they're being acquired taste, not seen in New Zealand. So uh, our scientists uh, in New Zealand help them get rid of some diseases using the same techniques they used on PSA for kiwi fruit. So this is the way trade works, two ways. You know, we get Vietnamese limes and pomelos coming to a supermarket near you, and they'll get wheat in due course, kiwi strawberries and the like. Oh, that's fantastic. Giles, thank you very much for your time, sir. We're going to go, uh, we need to talk to Professor Baker uh, now, but um, we'll, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Um, let, let's do that. Let's book it. We'll speak with Giles Beckford tomorrow. He's been travelling by motorcade. Zane has written in, uh, 50 years since we landed on the moon and they can't even get a modern day rocket off the ground. Gives mood landing deniers such great fodder. You do have to wonder. No, you don't, Zane. Um, It's it's interesting though with James, as he said, they just got to make sure that the little bits of hydrogen don't escape. Anyway, uh, daily COVID-19 cases topped 4,000 for the first time in three months yesterday, and it remains unclear when this wave will peak, given the number of new variants in circulation. Uh, Joining us now is uh, University of Otago epidemiologist. It's always a pleasure to get to say hello to Dr. Michael Baker. Kia ora, Sue. Tell me, what's your assessment of this current wave that's out there. Well, Rena, Nathan, yeah, good to talk again. Uh, this is very much our third Omicron wave. Uh, fortunately, it's not as um, intense as the first two, but it's certainly happening. And you're right, we're seeing more than 
uh, or our moving average has gone over 3,000 cases a day, got over 400 people in hospital, and unfortunately, uh, the number of deaths is increasing as well. Uh, so it's hard to tell um, where this will peak. It might be a gentle rise up to Christmas, or it might go up or down over the next few weeks. We just don't know at the moment. I mean, I know you can do government policy or what have you, but a lot of this falls back on the public to, to, to be able to look after ourselves, Giles. So to bring these numbers down, what can we do as as, as the humble public? Well, I think the, the, the big three things, and I think everyone knows these now, and one, of course, is to get up to date with your vaccine and, and boosters. And we know that, um, for example, over 50% of people who are eligible for their fourth dose haven't had it yet. So that's a real gap, and so I think that's critical. I think the second thing, of course, is to take uh, precaution at precautions when you've got social events and so on. Uh, particularly, you know, we're moving into the festive season. I think try and shift these outside, maybe in covered areas where there's really good ventilation. I think that's very helpful. And of course, the third thing is if you get symptoms, isolate and test. Uh, the government said it's got no plans to bring in an annual booster shot. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, well, look, at the moment, the problem is that a lot of people haven't had their third or fourth dose. Okay. So people are missing out on vaccines that they're entitled to, and that's a big gap. But I'm sure we, the government will look at um, an additional booster early next year when we're moving into uh, the, that pre-winter period. Because I see the Australians, um, what, their authorities over there recommending against getting a fifth COVID vaccine. Why, why would that be? Well, I think at the moment the priority is to get uh, your um, basic course and your boosters, and that's okay. the same in New Zealand. But I'm sure um, when we move into next year, we'll have waning immunity will be a real problem. And then I think um, the government will look at uh, perhaps getting uh, uh, this additional booster along with um, your flu shot. But I know that this is all under review. And the big thing, of course, will be that, that whatever booster we have next year, Will probably be what's called this bivalent vaccine. So it's going to co- cover um, the original strain and Omicron as well. I think anyone who's had COVID, I, I've experienced this myself, just the, the weeks afterwards, the confusion that happens, the loss of time and being able to do things like that, I found very hard. How concerned are you about that? There is some research out, and I know it's only a couple of years old, so it's hard to know accurately, but it suggests that COVID might lead to degenerative brain diseases. Yeah, look, I think this is uh, the biggest worry at the moment and uh, maybe the largest consequence of the pandemic is the all of the long-term effects. And I mean, they're generally called, and they're grouped into long COVID, but there's obviously a whole lot of different things that go on. And I think the neurological effects can be very severe and quite disabling. At the moment, it's looking like maybe 5% of people have some long-term effects after three months. And you get you you run the risk of long COVID every time you get infected and reinfected. So I think we still want to uh, minimise the number of times people get this virus. Uh, Michael, thank you uh, very much for your time. Uh, there is Dr. Michael Baker there with some uh, pretty sobering thoughts uh, for everybody uh, about that. So yeah, I mean, yes, we can. Uh, this is up to us now, everyone. Okay, it's up to us. It's uh, take just take care of yourselves, uh, please. Here we are. Uh, some great feedback this morning. Morena, Giles sounds sexy on the road. That haggard, ragged shades of fear and loathing. <laughs> That's great. It's fabulous. Um, and here's another one. So Damien O'Connor is more dense than the average person.
yes, off the uh, the back there of Giles's uh, report. I love that Giles traveling by motorcade. It's it's just fantastic. I, w- I would love to see a Giles travel show. Uh, Morning report is next with Marnie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, please enjoy uh, the sounds of music. Of course, uh, this hit the stages in 1959 on this day, November 16th. Uh, First Up's back in your ears. Ah, Paul Paul. Take it away, Julie. To laugh like a brook when it trips and falls. 